please take your Bible, turn over to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Psalm of repentance. Psalm 51. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 6. David's the writer. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And may God at his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. Let's bow for prayer. Heavenly Father, I come as your messenger today. I pray that my heart would be pure and that you would use me as a vessel, a sinner saved by grace to allow your spirit to speak through me. And Lord, I pray most of all that the word of God as it goes forth, that Lord, you would touch each person's heart. You know exactly where everybody is in this room because you're omniscient, Lord, and we just pray that you would help your word to do a powerful work in our midst, in our lives. Let the power of your Holy Spirit be evident as we talk about this very important psalm. We pray and ask in Jesus' name, amen. Today we're going to begin a three-part series for Lent leading up to Easter. We spend a considerable time during the Advent season talking about Christmas, but it isn't often when we focus on Easter for several weeks. And so uh, as of today, we're 27 days into Lent. We have 13 days remaining. Sundays are not counted in the 40 days of Lent. And our series is entitled Repentance, Remembrance, and Renewal. This morning we're going to look at conviction leading to repentance that leads to revival. And I sense that many Christ followers take for granted the ministry of the Holy Spirit when it comes to the act of conviction. God created every man and woman in his image with a conscience that enables us to determine what is right and what is wrong. And when we sin against God in our conscience, if our conscience is still sensitive to the Holy Spirit, if we haven't seared it or quenched it or grieved it, then we can feel and know that sin that God is challenging us with. And so as I think of that, that idea, I think of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And you think about the first sin, the sin that started it all and passed on to all men. And they disobeyed God. And then God comes and says, where are you, Adam? Where are you? And they're hiding because of the conviction of sin. Because of their sin, they knew in their conscience that they had done what was inappropriate and what God told them not to do. Many Christ followers have cheapened God's grace by ignoring the prompting of the Holy Spirit to seek forgiveness right away. Or they've grieved God's spirit or are quenching God's spirit by their continual habit of sin in an area or areas of their life. People think that if they willfully sin, well, God will just forgive them, but that cheapens grace. And if you're a believer in Christ, God does forgive, but there'll be loving discipline, consequences in this life and a loss of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ if you live as a carnal Christian. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, talking about carnal Christians, they are believers 
who desire to live for themselves and to live for the world in the world system that's at work around us. In Ephesians, he talks about the, the people that are in disobedience, going contrary to God's word. So let's look for a moment at what conviction is not. And I encourage you to take your notes out. Conviction is not these things. First of all, it's not merely feeling guilty. Guilt is part of it. As we unpack it, we'll talk more about that. But it's not just merely feeling guilty. Conviction is not feeling shame. Conviction is not feeling judgment coming down because you did something wrong. Conviction is not just a knowledge, just the knowledge of what is right or wrong. And conviction is not just feeling sorry for getting caught doing something wrong. Thinking, well, if I just did it differently next time, I won't get caught. That's not conviction. And I put in your notes here, the word convict in the Greek language, elenko, which means to convince someone of the truth, to reprove, to accuse, to refute, or cross-examine a witness. So what is conviction? Well, conviction is to have our eyes open to what sin is. To have our eyes open to what sin is. In John 14 and John 16, before Jesus left, he talked about he was going to send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, the Paraclete. Paraclete in the Greek means to come alongside you. And one of the responsibilities of the Holy Spirit was to bring conviction of sin in John 16, 8. And when the Holy Spirit comes, Jesus said, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Another way we know about conviction is the sense revolting sin in the presence of God. When we sense that we have hurt God, that we uh, look at sin and we despise it, we hate it. In Psalm 5, verse 4, it says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Isaiah 6 is one of my favorite passages in the Bible, 1 through 8. talks about, in the early part of that chapter, Isaiah had a vision of the holiness of God. In verse 5, it says, he said, Woe is me, I am undone. I'm a sinner in the presence of a holy God. And the angel had to go and take a coal off the fire and put it on his lips to bring forgiveness of sin. He saw his unworthiness before a perfect and holy God. He saw his sin. Also to sense that our sin dishonors God. Our sin dishonors God. In verse 4 of this passage we read, Against you, David said, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David talking to God. He's owning his sin. He's sensing that his sin dishonored God. And then to sense our separation from God by harboring sin in our hearts. Psalm 66, 18 says, If we cherished iniquity or sin in our heart, the Lord would not have listened. We can't continue to walk around with the burden of sin unconfessed in our life and expect God to answer our prayers. We have to come and realize there's a separation because of our sin. And then to sense the anger of God and the Holy Spirit when we sin. I want us to really think about that. When we sin, we are hurting God. We're hurting the Holy Spirit. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men 
who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Ephesians 4.30, it says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. See, the Holy Spirit is not just a force. He is a person of the Trinity in relationship with the Father and the Son. And he has emotions and feelings. And so we see that he is God. And when we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, do not quench the Spirit. When we ignore those promptings of conviction, we are holding back what God wants to do, to draw us to repentance, to bring forgiveness into our lives. And then, conviction is to draw us to repentance and forgiveness. As I just said, to draw us to repentance and forgiveness. Romans 2.4, Or do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? In other words, through God's gracious conviction of sin in a loving and merciful way, he wants you to repent to keep that relationship with him open and flourishing. Conviction is to make us a usable vessel for his service. God wants clean vessels. That's why we have to, throughout the day, ask God to forgive us of our sin, to agree with God about our sin, to call it by name. And then he could continue to have that open relationship to use us. In 2 Timothy 2, it says, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Verse 21, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. I hope the desire of your heart is that you want God to use you. And in order to do that, to keep a a clean vessel, be available for that Holy Spirit to not only work in your life, but to flow out of you to others around you. And then lastly, as we think about what conviction is, to remind us that we are his children. When we're convicted of sin, it reminds us that we have a Heavenly Father that cares about us that doesn't want to see us to fall into habitual sin, that wants to draw us back, as we said, to himself. And it's a reminder that we have a sense that we know Christ as our Savior. In John 6, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And the Holy Spirit's what draws us into that relationship. So we're going to move now to Psalm 51 and summarize this great psalm of repentance. And I want to make this as applicable as I can and to use some cross-references from God's Word to drive home these important points that need to be a part of our daily connection with God. We're going to just unpack how we deal with conviction and sin in our life and then what it looks like. And this psalm is a beautiful picture of how to do that. In Psalm 51, this is about King David right after his affair with Bathsheba, after he plotted and sanctioned the killing of her husband Uriah. And then, you know, she was pregnant with a baby because of the adulterous affair, and of course the baby had died. And then Nathan the prophet comes to David and says, Thou art the man, pointing the finger of sin and how it's affecting the nation of Israel as well as David. 
This psalm is David's psalm of confession and heartfelt repentance for his sin against God and those in the family of Bathsheba and for his sin against the nation of Israel that he reigned over. So the first main point here is the plea, the plea for forgiveness of confessed sin. David was desperate to rebuild his relationship with God, to tear down that wall that was built up because of unrepentant sin in his life. He says in verses one through four, I own my sin against God. It says, as we read just a few moments ago in Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. That I agree with you that what you say is sin is sin. You are justified in your words and you are right to judge. You are blameless to judge. When the Holy Spirit and the word of God points something out that brings a sense of wrongdoing in your life, what do you do with it? Do you make excuses? Sometimes I do that. Do you and I blow it off and say it was no big deal? One little lie doesn't hurt anything. Do we blame it on others or our circumstances? Or do you say sometimes, I wouldn't have done that if, and you fill in the blank, right? Do you agree with God about your sin? Confess means to see sin as God sees it and agree that it's sin. That's what it says in verse three. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Do you ask God daily to make you sensitive to sin and how to avoid it? Do you put on the whole armor of God that tells us in Ephesians 6 to keep the fiery darts of Satan from coming at us and making us vulnerable to his attacks and drawing us into sin? Do you say like David in verse 4, against you, you God, have I sinned and done evil in your sight? Do you own it? Do you say it by name? Do we come to God when convicted of our sin, pleading for mercy, as it says in verse 1? Do we come to the only one we know who loves us faithfully and can forgive our sin? Do we ask for the blood of Christ to wash away our sins? Every believer, I believe, should memorize 1 John 1, 9. It's the Christian soap. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I claim that verse several times a day as a reminder that no matter how bad I blew it or what I did or what crazy thing I did, guess what? God's faithful and just to cleanse us and forgive us of all, A-L-L, our sin. In Hebrews 9.27, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Because of Jesus' sacrifice on that wooden cross, because he shed his blood, we have the privilege, the opportunity to be forgiven of our sin. In 1 John 2.24, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. He nailed your sins and my sins to that cross to himself when he was there crucified on our behalf. So we need to own our sin. Second of all, I sinned because I was born with a sinful nature. I sinned because I was born with a sinful nature. Look at what he says in verses five and six of Psalm 51. Behold, 
I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. The Holy Spirit working with our conscience from the beginning of our days, shortly after birth, works to make us to feel guilty for breaking God's laws and wanting to live independently of God and his teachings. The doctrine of original sin has two aspects, according to that great theologian Augustine. First, it describes the origin of sin and the disobedience of Adam. Augustine called it the originating original sin. Second, it describes the sinful condition with which every human being is born, the originated original sin, Augustine said. It thus has both an explanatory and a descriptive role. Now, there are different theories of our souls at birth. Some obscure Jewish rabbis believe in the pure soul theory, that they believe that you're born uh, in a pure nature, and that if you are able to follow the laws of the Torah without breaking any one of them, that you would be able to get into heaven. And the problem with that is that... Jesus would not have had to die for everyone if there was another way to salvation besides the cross. But they claim that nobody does because once you sin, you become a sinner. They believe that you're born pure and then you become a sinner. The English philosopher John Locke believed in the blank slate theory. At birth, we're born with a blank slate and life's experiences Our parents, our upbringing, our education, and all these things form the soul for good or bad. This is known in Latin as the tabula rosa. And then there's a progressive Christian man named Tony Campolo who believes that every human being is born with a divine spark and that we have to fan that spark into a flame. But the Bible says that we sin because we are born sinners. We sin because we are born sinners. Sinners In Romans 5, 12 through 14, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses as a consequence of sin. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Adam was the one who sin passed down to all mankind. The remedy for that sin was Jesus' death on the cross, his burial, and his subsequent resurrection. Continuing in Romans 5, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, Adam, so one act of righteousness, Jesus, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. One man, disobedience, passes to all generations, but... One man, Jesus, comes, the perfect son of God, pays the price and breaks the power of sin in our life. When Jesus said on the cross on that Good Friday, it is finished, it literally meant that he had paid in full the debt to satisfy God's wrath against our sin. And no more sacrifices are required. So here's our application to receive forgiveness of God 
I need to agree with God about my sin. I need to agree with God about my sin when I sense the conviction of sin from the Holy Spirit. When we feel that conviction, it's time to say to God, show me. Let the searchlight of the Holy Spirit speak to me about what my sin is and confess it to him right then and there. Second, we see in Psalm 51, the purification of the heart. The process that occurs when we confess our sin, when we're willing to turn away from our sin. The purification of the heart. David said, I am brokenhearted over my sin against God. Look at verses seven and nine of Psalm 51. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. You can see how humble David was. Uh, He had nowhere else to turn. And he's talking about here a godly sorrow that's brought on by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit that moves us to repentance. It happens when we come to faith in Christ and it continues to happen moment by moment after we come to that faith in him. So take your Bible, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. This is a very important distinction. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. The difference between worldly grief and godly sorrow. Worldly grief and godly sorrow. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 7, 9. Paul says, as it is to you Corinthian believers, I rejoice not because you were grieved, because, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. It does not bring salvation. For verse 11, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. For also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. What is the difference between worldly grief and godly sorrow? Worldly grief is, we're sorry that we got caught. The next time, we need to figure out a better way to do what we want to do so we won't get caught. Okay? It's not owning the sin. It's not saying, I was wrong. I just need a better approach. And I'm sorry, maybe I'm sorry for what I did, and I apologize, but the activity continues. There's not a sign of repentance. And when we think of godly sorrow, it it is a sorrow that says, I want to turn away from that sin and turn to God and obey him. That's what it's all about. We meditate and we consider with godly sorrow how our sin has hurt the God who loves us unconditionally. David is asking for forgiveness and healing from the discipline and the consequences he faced physically on his body because of his sin with Bathsheba. We need to be reminded all sin is sin and we need to accept that any sin hurts God deeply and be reminded that Jesus had to go to the cross for the sin that we have committed. This thought should be useful in helping us to be deterred from sin, to not give in. And every time we sin, It's against God, and sometimes those we're in relationship with as well. Just like that song we sang last week when Carrie was leading us in worship, 
Here I am to worship. I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross. We can't imagine from God's perspective the price of sin. And then I want to restore my relationship with God, David said in verses 10 through 12. I want to restore my relationship with God. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Remember, at the point of our salvation, God has forgiven us from all our sins and removed them from us. But when we sin in this church age, in the New Testament age, we separate ourselves from our relationship with God. David is asking for his hardened, sinful heart to be replaced by repentance with a heart of flesh, a heart that's cleansed, that's sensitive to sin to avoid it with the purpose of keeping his relationship with God going forward without interruption. In Ezekiel 36, 26, it says, And I give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, of life, something that's moldable, teachable, sensitive to the Holy Spirit. The application here is to receive forgiveness from God for my sin. I need to be brokenhearted over my sin when convicted by the Holy Spirit. When was the last time that any of us were moved to tears because of our sin? When was the last time that we were truly brokenhearted about hurting the heart of God because of something we did, something to think about. Thirdly, this morning, the promise for renewed service as a clean vessel. This is what's amazing, that God loves to use sinners saved by grace who are clean vessels to carry out his kingdom work. Now, honestly, if we were God, would we, wouldn't we try to find a different way to do it? But he loves us, and we're his special creation, and he wants to use us. So the promise for renewed service as a clean vessel. David said, I'm restored to serve and praise God. Verse 13 of Psalm 51. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. God created us for several things, and I'm going to list some of those and not in any priority, but all these things God created us, first of all, for fellowship with him. God doesn't need us to be in relationship. He's got a relationship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, but our God is a God of relationship. He made us that way with fellow man, but also to have a relationship with him. He desired to create human beings as a special creation to interact and commune with him. Second of all, God created us to glorify the Father. As we live in relationship with the Father, we reflect the light of his glory in the relationships and in the culture around us. We're to be the lights of the world, as it tells us in Matthew chapter 5. Just as the moon reflects the sun's light, so we reflect the light of God's glory by what we say, how we act, our values, and our attitudes that are displayed. The third reason God created us was to praise him, to praise him, fellowship with him, glorify him, to praise him. In Hebrews 13, 15, it says, through Christ, 
then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name through our singing, through our words, through our prayers, through the reading of God's word back to God. We praise God in many aspects. And fourthly, God created man to partner with him in his kingdom work. We're a partner with him. You realize in John's gospel, he even called his disciples friends. And you and I, we are friends of God on some level. We have a holy reverence of him, but we are his friends because we're working in conjunction with him to carry out his kingdom work. Again, God doesn't need us, but he desires to work in and through us. The work that he does in us personally, he wants us to be shared and used for service with others. We're not to hoard what God does in our lives. That's another reason that we need to be clean vessels for his use. We must surrender to him and let him use us however he desires. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7, I love this analogy. But we have this treasure, the Holy Spirit living within us, the gospel. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And then we see, I am an unworthy but faithful servant of God. He says in verses 16 through 17, I am an unworthy but faithful servant of God. For you will not delight in sacrifice, verse 16 of Psalm 51, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Isn't that a great promise? That if we come humble, confessing our sin, brokenhearted over our sin, he will not turn us away. He will not despise us. God is calling us to surrender, to lay down how we prefer for God to work in our lives, to quit telling God how we want him to work and bless our lives, to put away our idols. An idol is anything that we put higher in value and relationship to God. It could be our work. It could be our possessions. It could be the time that we spend or the money that we give, anything we put at a higher level than God that we value more so than they are idols. And we have to daily let go of our pride and look to God in humility to be our sufficient grace in our weakness. So our application here is to be used by God as a clean vessel of honor. I must be reminded I'm continually a sinner saved by grace who surrenders to the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. We sang that song, I Surrender All. It's easy to say those words, but are they coming from your heart? Surrendering all. And we do that continually so we can be used by God. Last this morning, and very important, the plea for restoration and revival for the nation. David moves beyond his own confession of sin and how it's affected him. But he's the king of Israel. And he also knows that what he did and what people are doing in Israel is moving them away from God. And so he says that he prays for the restoration of his country's relationship with God in verse 18. Psalm 51, 18, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Turn us back to God and bring blessing to our land. 
2 Corinthians 7.14, we're all pretty familiar with that passage of Scripture, but it's a really good prescription for revival and restoration in our lives and for a nation. He says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and heal their land. Too many times we want to seek God's hand of blessing but do we seek his face of holiness? And when we seek his face of holiness, it reveals the sin in our life. And notice he says there, seek my face and turn from the wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless. Toward him, not the per- not perfect, but confess sin, blameless before him. And he concludes in verse nineteen with, "I pray that revival will begin with me." He says, "Then will you delight God in my right sacrifices, in my burnt offerings, in my whole burnt offerings? Then bulls will be offered on your altar. I can bring these offerings to you." because I have a clean heart before you. And that's a sign of revival, a changed heart. I think of 1 Peter 4, 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, Peter said, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? In a moment, we're gonna have a lengthy period of silence. Some, some, something like our Quaker brethren do in their services where we contemplate and we focus in on ourselves and we draw a circle around ourselves and we don't think about the person that we came with or the people sitting around us and we just focus upon the Holy Spirit and allow him to speak to our hearts and lives, to convict us, to make us aware of our sin, to ask for forgiveness, to ask God to show what to do with the earthly relationships that we've sinned against. It should be your desire to be all that God wants you to be and to be available to him to use you in any way he possibly wants. Do you desire to be used of God to your maximum potential? That's what God desires for you. Our final application is this, when convicted of sin... We come to God on his terms by confessing and repenting of our sin in order to receive forgiveness to be used by God. That's the focus. That's the purpose of Psalm 51, to bring us to the place where we can have that continual relationship with God and be restored and to be a usable vessel for him. I'm going to share a personal story. I give God all the glory. This isn't to magnify me at all because... I didn't even know this was going to happen. So a week ago Friday, I was down at St. Pete Beach, and it was the last day before we flew back, and I skipped lunch. I just wanted to be on the beach as long as I could and in the golf. And so it was late afternoon. I was kind of hot and tired and walking back. I know some of you are saying, wow, suffer for Jesus, right? But, <laughs> but <clears throat> I was hungry, tired, hot, headed back to the condo, and uh this guy walked 50 yards across the beach that I'd met earlier in the day and said, hey, you didn't come talk to me. 
I want to ask you some questions about your spiritual journey. And it was one of those moments like, is he talking to me? Like, I'm just walking back, you know, getting ready to go in, take a shower and eat. And so I went and talked to Randy, who lives in that condo building. I talked to him for 40 minutes. And he asked me where my spiritual journey began. And I got to share how I came to Christ. And I shared with him um, how I walked with Christ on a daily basis. And he was so interested. And he asked me lots and lots of, lots of questions. And uh, it's a great opportunity for Scott and Patty Lee to follow up with them. But I thought to myself, here I am on vacation, just minding my own business, walking across the beach, and a guy approaches me and wants to ask me questions about Christianity, the gospel, how I know Jesus, how I continue to walk with him, and all those things. Here's our key thought, though, as I think about that, and I leave you with to apply to your life. God wants us to keep our sin list short, our relationship connected as much as possible to use us for his honor and glory and his kingdom work. The key thought here is when the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, we must move immediately to agree with God about our sin and seek forgiveness through repentance. We must immediately respond when we're convicted. We must agree with God and say, Lord, I have said this and defined the sin. Don't give that generic, forgive me for all my sin, but name the sin. And immediately seek forgiveness through repentance. And so for the next few moments, I want you to just kind of set everything aside Not going to be any music playing. We're just going to ask you to draw a circle around yourself. Just focus in on your heart for the next few moments. And then I'm going to conclude by prompting you to look at the screen and we're going to watch a very, I don't even know how to describe, but a a great video, a great way to close our service today. They have a lot of meaning as to this message and to your heart. So take a few moments and ask God to show you and to work in your life. Every one of us are individual. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. And lift your eyes, if you would, to the screens and watch this music video. Clear the stage and set the sound and the lights ablaze If that's the measure you must take to cross the idols Jerk the pews and all the decorations too Until the congregation's fueling half revival Tell your friends that this is where the party ends Until you're broken for your sins You can't be social And seek the Lord and wait for what he has in store And know that great is your reward So just be hopeful Cause you can sing all you want to Yes, you can Sing all you want to You can sing all you want to And still get it wrong Oh, worship is more than a song
from all the plans that you have made and sit at home alone and wait for God to whisper I beg him please to open up his mouth and speak and pray for real upon your knees until they blister shine the light on every corner of your life until the pride and lust and lies are in the open Then read the word and put to test the things you've heard Until your heart and soul are stirred and rocked and broken Cause you can sing all you want to Yes you can is an idol and anything I want with all my heart is an idol and anything I can't stop thinking of is an idol Let's stand. Let's stand together and pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we pray today that you would clear the stage of our life of anything that would be displeasing to you. Lord, help us to not harbor these things, to make excuses, to hold on to these idols, but Lord, just surrender them to you. There's no greater relationship, there's no greater sense of knowing that we are rightly related to you, Lord. And we thank you for the fact that you give us the means to have forgiveness of sin, to be usable vessels in your sight. 
Lord, help us. Help us to be sensitive to the convicting power of your Holy Spirit as we go out this week. Bless our time downstairs. Bless the food that we're about to eat. And we pray that we will continue this time of worship because and everything we do is an act of worship as we gather for our annual business meeting. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.